This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Thankful for for everyone being able to to come out um, and and worship. It's been a good worship service so far. We've sang songs uh, centered around the the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that is something that's on everyone's mind, uh, usually uh, on Easter Sunday. And and while the, the resurrection is a, an event that should be celebrated always, it doesn't matter if there's a, a special day or a special Sunday for that. We should always be mindful and celebrate the resurrection. While that is true, it's, it is important to recognize the, the events uh, and the details that took place on that day and, and even leading up to the death and resurrection of Christ. And so this morning I want to talk about that, those events uh, kind of focus on a few things that happened during the last week of Jesus' life, and hopefully it, it can remind us of all that Jesus went through. It can remind us of the significance of these events. It can remind us of the importance for our lives. So we'll examine the story, we'll look at the reasons that Jesus had to go through this, and then we'll look at the importance for us today and bringing it in, into, our, into focus for us and a call to action for us. Uh, so the story really begins with, with Jesus or where we'll begin as far as in the story, is with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Now, if you remember in John chapter 12, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and this was something that went far and wide, the, the news of this miracle that took place. And so the people, it says in, in John chapter 12, it actually says that the people who saw that and witnessed that bear record of this great miracle, and many people came from all over. Jews and non-Jews alike came together to see this man, Jesus. They wanted to see the one who did this miracle. And so as Jesus approaches, uh, he's in Bethany, that's not far from Jerusalem, and as he approaches and comes into Jerusalem, the people start to throw down these palm leaves, uh, and many, that's why many call it Palm Sunday. Uh, they start to throw down these palm leaves and their clothes as Jesus is entering in, and he goes and finds a donkey, a young donkey, and he rides it into the city as people are praising him, as we see in John chapter 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. So the, the proverb or the uh, prophecy here that was mentioned is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that specifically mentions the king riding in on this young donkey coming into the city. And it says, Behold, your king comes sitting on this donkey. And the people recognize this. So this is a very significant moment as the people that gathered, had, that have heard about this man's miracles, that have witnessed this man's miracles, now in this final week of his life, they're praising him as the king and saying, Behold and hail the king. Blessed is the king of Israel that comes. And they're recognizing him as king. So this is very important. The king has arrived. The one that they have been waiting for. The one that is going to vanquish their foes. The one that is going to bring peace to their people. The one that is going to gather all nations unto himself. He's here. And they're finally seeing that and recognizing him properly. And also, uh, another part of that prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says that He is just and having salvation, and He is lowly. And that is exactly the description of Jesus. He is a lowly, humble servant that comes in, not with great fanfare, 
not with great might and great power and some great army, but with lowliness, with humility, totally pure, riding into the city to save his people from their sins. And so here he's fulfilling this prophecy as he enters into Jerusalem. Uh, in frustration, the Pharisees, they know. They, Jesus did this miracle. He raised up Lazarus from the dead. There's no way that we can deny it. And they're so frustrated in John chapter 12. It says, uh, they said, look, there's nothing we can do to prevail against this. The whole world has gone after him. And it's true. The whole world had, uh, at this point, begun coming to Jesus. And, and this was... This was very connected to many prophecies that happened uh, way back in the days of the Old Testament about the king that would gather the nations unto himself. And indeed, both Jews and non-Jews had come to this moment in Jerusalem to see the Christ. In John chapter 12, verse 20, it says, There were certain Greeks among them that came to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip, Tell Jesus. So these Greeks had gathered together and they go to his disciples and say, we want to see the man. We want to see Jesus. They're, they have come to follow him. And it's interesting what Jesus begins to tell them here. And it's very focused and centered, if you'll notice, in the language that Jesus uses around his death and his resurrection. Uh, he says, uh, Jesus answered them in verse 23, saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus here, using this language of this, of this corn, if it's planted, it's going to die. But if it dies, it's going to be raised and it's going to bring forth much fruit. It's going to grow and bring more. And he's saying this in connection to understanding that he is the king that's gathering all nations. And these Greeks now have come to be a part of this this family of this king. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto, eternal, unto life eternal. And here, he's not just speaking of Jews, but speaking of all people. He says, If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I into this hour. So Jesus points out the obvious here and says, this is the, the exact reason, the gathering of the nations, the coming into the world and dying and being raised again to bring many people into glory and to, to bear much fruit for the glory of God in, in that He's raised from life. This is the exact purpose that He came into the world for. And again, this is a prophecy that goes back even, even in the days of Israel as He is Blessing his twelve sons, he comes to Judah and he says of Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And here we see this event finally taking place. The king is gathering all nations unto himself. Now, if there's more significant events that take place. Jesus going into the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers there in the temple. As, a, as an act to purify the temple and to establish his place as, as the owner and the ruler of that, of that place and that home as, as the true king. And this enrages the Pharisees even more. Um, but leading up to the night before his death, or the day before his death, we come to the Last Supper. He, and this is where he institutes the communion. So this is what's going on in Jesus' mind during the last week of his life, knowing his focus he understands his purpose. He knows that it's all centered around this event. For this cause came I into this world. To experience this, to gather all the nations, 
to die, but to be raised again. And he told and prepared his disciples over and over again throughout his ministry. And now these disciples who have been following him for so long, he continues to prepare them, continues to teach them, continues to train them and help them prepare for that time when the resurrection comes. And so as they gather together for this last meal that they will have with Christ before his death, he institutes the Last Supper. Matthew 26 says, in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So again, this king referencing his, this act that's going to take place and telling them, I will drink this communion with you and have this communion with you again. And I will do this anew in my Father's kingdom. Now again, this is a connection to his death. I'm not going to drink this with you anymore. This is the last time I'll have this with you in this fashion, but I'll drink it with you in a new way in the kingdom of my Father. And so he's referencing the, the, the act of communion as Jesus partakes of these uh, things and communes with us when we partake of the communion. Now he continues to speak to his disciples and teach them many things and, and prepare them because these men that have followed him uh, for these last three years have grown attached to him, of course, and, and don't want to see him go, but he keeps telling them, you followed me, and now where I'm going next, you cannot follow me. And they're confused about that. And, and he tells them, I, you'll be, I'm with you for a little while, and then I'm going to not be with you yet a little while, and you will see me again. And they, they're confused at some of the cryptic language that Jesus is using, and then he tells them, he tells them very plainly um, about this, but notice in John 16, 19 to 20, now Jesus knew they were desirous to ask him what he meant. And he said to them, do you inquire among yourselves of that I said, a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that you, you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And he proceeds to tell them about how he came from God. He came, and he came forth and proceeded out of the Father, and he was going back to the Father. And this was his entire purpose, his entire mission, the, the whole time. And they say, now you're not, you're not speaking in parables anymore. You're telling us very clearly and very plainly, and we understand. Um, and he's preparing them in these final moments before his betrayal. Now, before they go off into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says more words to train his disciples and to show them all of the work and to explain to them his purpose and coming and, and his glory that he had with the Father. He mentions in this prayer that he has as he lifts up his eyes in John chapter 17 and he, he has this beautiful prayer through the whole chapter. Uh, really, John chapter 13 through uh, 17 are just amazing teachings that Jesus gives to his disciples on the night before his death. But he says in John 17, verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. It's time. He knows that the moment is, is arrived. It's time for him to die. And he asks, Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. And thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. 
I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus here praying to his Father, remembering the glory that he had in heaven and the presence of God. And we see here what's going on in the mind of Jesus as he prays. He's remembering this glory that he had. He wants to uh, receive that glory again, but it also highlights the fact that he gave something up, something incredible up, to come into this world to become a human being like you and I. And now he prays and he, he asks for eternal life. For He has the authority to grant eternal life to all those who are his. And he goes on through, the, through this chapter and this prayer talking about the unity that he wants his disciples to have. He wants not just for the disciples that are with him there that, are, that he's about to depart from who have been following him, but for all who would hear and follow him. Any man from any nation, because this is the king that is gathering the nations. He wants us to have this, this eternal life, and he prays for us here in this verse. And, and that prayer includes you and I. Now as he finishes these, these words, they go and they travel to the, to, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, where his grief intensifies. In John chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book of uh, Kidron, where there was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times res resorted thither with his disciples. So Jesus goes over here to the garden of Gethsemane, and that word Gethsemane fittingly means oil press. This is the place where they would, they would make uh, olive oil and they would press these things with these stones and it would crush those and, and expel or express this oil. And how interesting and how fitting is it that Jesus went to this place and here his sorrow intensifies and the weight of sin and the weight of what's about to happen and the pain he's going to suffer is now pressing upon him so much so that he begins to sweat drops of blood. In Matthew 26, we read, then cometh Jesus with him into a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit thou here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou. And he would pray that prayer three times, asking God to if there was some other way, but he knew and understood there is no other way. I must do this. I must complete the will of the Father. And we see the, the grief of Jesus intensify here. And as he's praying there in the garden and ends these prayers, here comes the betrayer, a disciple that has followed him and traveled with him, who he has loved, who he has, he has cared about, who has, he has given so much to, and here comes Judas, leading the Jews to Gethsemane to carry out this betrayal. Judas, when having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And he comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus responds in Luke 22, He said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief, with swords and staves? I was, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus understood this was all part of the plan. 
This is all, the, the, this was the hand and the handiwork of, of it was the determinate counsel of God, but God allowed them to, to have this power and Satan was about to strike. And they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house and Peter followed afar off. And it says in verse 56 of Matthew 26, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so Jesus here is alone. Just as he talked about that piece of corn, if it falls and dies, it, it will be alone. And, and Jesus was. Abandoned by all people. His very own disciples. And now he's arrested. And now he's on trial with, with the chief priest of the Jews. And in Matthew 26, <clears throat> verses 59 uh, beginning in verse 59, we read of this trial, and we'll have a couple of, of longer readings here, but they're extremely important for us to understand the context, to understand Jesus' mindset, the things that he was enduring during this time, to see the contempt that the people had for him who had put him on trial, even the guilt that people had, like Pilate, we'll see in just a moment. Uh, but here he is on trial with the Jews, and in verse 59, we read of, of the events that take place. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Christ, uh, against Jesus to put him to death. So they were looking for anyone who would come up and lie and just make up whatever story they could that was plausible enough to, to uh, justify the fact that they wanted to kill him, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. And, the, and at the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Then the high priest arose and said to him, Answerest thou nothing? What is this which these witnesses bring against thee? And Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. Jesus here is acknowledging the fact that he is their king. And he is using language that is prophetic in nature that is used in the Old Testament about the, of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and it's not in a good way. It's in judgment against this wicked nation. And he here is condemning the Jews and telling them, I am going to execute judgment against you. I am your king. And they are enraged by this. The fact that this man, this humble, lowly, poor, Galilean man, has the gall to sit here and tell us that he's the king and he's going to execute judgment... He is making a clear delineation that these people are wicked and that he is the righteous king. And they are angry by this. And the high priest rips his clothes and says, what else? What else do you people need to hear? You've heard it from his own mouth. He thinks he's God. And, and he says, what thank ye? And they answered, he is guilty of death. And then they spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is it that smote thee? And so here they begin to beat and to mock and to ridicule Christ, but they are so enraged that this man would claim, would dare to claim that he is the Christ. And so they know that they have nothing. It's false witnesses. They know that they cannot legally, through the, through the law, put this man to death because they have no claim of him breaking the law, and they cannot prove it. And so 
they know that they have to take him to the, to the Romans in order to get this execution to take place. He's made himself a king. He said, I am the king. I'm the one that's coming in the clouds and will we'll execute judgment. And I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so the only thing they can think to do is say, he made himself a king. We need to take him to Caesar. We need to take him to uh, Pontius Pilate, rather, the Roman government, and tell them this man is claiming to be a king and he's going to rise up and he's going to overthrow uh, or try to revolt against the Roman government. And so they take him, they take Jesus then to, uh, to Pilate. Uh, in John chapter 18, we'll read over there in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they, sh- they might eat of the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. So already they're kind of they're biting back, it seems like. Of course, their conscience is guilty, but he says, What, what accusation? And their response is, Well, obviously he's a criminal. We brought him here to you. Then Pilate said to them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying what death he should die, that, that he would be taken by the chief priests and the Pharisees, and that he would be delivered to the Gentiles uh, and killed by, by these, uh, by this, in this manner. Um, then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee to me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into this world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Uh, It seems like Pilate is very curious about this man and these events that are taking place here, and he tries to, to find the truth, but Pilate finds nothing that he's done wrong. And he tries to go out and he tells the Jews so, and they say, no, crucify him. Crucify him. And so Pilate then has Jesus scourged. We read in John chapter uh, 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Now, now the, it's very easy for us to read over that and say, Okay, they took him and they scourged him. But this was an incredibly painful process. These Roman... Uh, military, these, these Roman soldiers were expert in torture. They were expert in brutal torture against criminals and, and against their enemies. And so, of course, they had this tool called the flagrum that was a, a short-handled whip that had several strands of leather that they would weave into it bones and pieces of metal. And, and this is what they were using to scourge Christ. It, it wasn't just a simple whip, and sometimes you see the paintings of, you know, that, are, that you see uh, online of Christ, and he's just this, he kind of looks kind of sad, and he's got a little cut on his side. That is not at all 
the picture that, uh, that does not at all depict reality. Jesus would have been bloodied from head to toe already. His bones exposed, his muscles exposed, ripped to shreds. Uh, some describe it as quivering ribbons of meat. And, and this was not something that... Some people didn't even survive the blood loss from this. This tells you how, what was happening and what was going on during this time as you understand the description of this. This was extremely intense pain and suffering that Jesus was already experiencing here. And to add to the pain, the crown of thorns, they, they ram onto his head. And these were not little thorns on a nice little neat crown that's all picturesque that we see pictures of online. Nothing like that. These were, this was just a wad of this, these thorns that probably would have been an inch or two, inch, two inches thick, and they would have rammed that on his head. And then they put on this robe on him. And, and imagine if you've ever had a deep cut and you put a cloth on it, how quickly that soaks up. And when you peel that off, that doesn't feel very good. Uh, and so they put this robe on him. And so his whole body is ripped to shreds. And now they've put this robe on him. And with each thing that they do, it just stings more and more. And, and he's in an intense, excruciating pain already. Uh, and so... <clears throat> So they begin to mock him, and all said, and, and they said, these Roman soldiers, Hail the king of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate, therefore, went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. It seems to me that there was some sense of a conscience in Pilate, and he knew this man was, was innocent. And now look at him, bloodied and, and beaten and ripped open and just sitting here, gushing out blood. And he says, I, here he is. I, I find no fault in him at all. Then came Jesus forth wearing the thorn of crowns and the purple robe, and Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. I think he was hoping that this would be enough for the Jews to see, to stop this. And the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him. They cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take ye and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Uh, no fault in him. Then Jesus answered him, "We have." Then the Jews rather answered him, "We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God." And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid. I mean, these were the Romans, although idolatrous as they were, still had a sense of reverence for deities, and they're saying this is the Son of God. He is afraid now of this, even more afraid, it says. Um, so that tells you he was already afraid, and now he's even more afraid when he hears this saying. And he went again into the judgment hall and said to Jesus, Whence art thou? He's asking him, Where are you come from? Where, what is your origin? Where did you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Now imagine Jesus delivering that, those words as, was not as, as simple and clear and loud as we might have heard. I mean, he was sitting here bloodied and, and, and tortured. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou release him, uh, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. 
When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought forth Jesus and sat down in the judgment seat in the place which is called pavement, but in the, Jew, in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. And the process of Roman crucifixion, after their, their scourging, they would, be, uh, they would carry up the, the uh, part of the cross, the cross beam. Um, but Jesus at this point was so weak. If you recall, they, they had to compel Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. He wasn't capable of, of carrying this, this cross. Um, and so Jesus here, in the tattered body, makes his way up to the cross, and they nail him to the cross. And, and the pain just continues to, to go on. I mean, they, they pierce his hands, driving the nails through his hands, driving the nails through his feet, and lift him up on the cross. And here, Jesus hangs, dying on the cross, and his own people, the people he came to save, his own people, the people he loved so dearly, his own people that he was doing all of this for, all they could do is mock him. In Matthew 27, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus here hanging on the cross, just utterly alone and, and dying on the cross, forsaken, completely forsaken uh, by the Father. And now it says that they that passed by reviled him, wagging their head and saying, you, that destroy, you said you were going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days, now save yourself. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Likewise, the chief priest mocked him with the scribes and elders, saying, well, he saved other people, and himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now, and we will believe him. Are you so trusting in God? Let God deliver him now. If he'll have him, he said, I'm the son of God. This is all they could do, is just mock this man that is dying and bleeding and hanging on the cross, who claimed and showed that he was their king. And here he is, condemned and all alone, as, as he said would be the case. And then they take his body down because it's the preparation of the Passover and they, at the very least, don't want to leave a Jewish person hanging, uh, dying there on a Sabbath day. And so that Friday before nightfall, before the official end of Friday, going into the Sabbath day, they take him down from the cross and they bury him. Joseph of Arimathea comes in John 19. It says, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. And he came therefore and took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and an hundred pound weight. And they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher that was wherein never was man yet laid. 
There they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. It was close by, and they said, let's take him there. Any farther probably would have been, they would not have made it in time, and they would have been uh, doing all of this during a Sabbath, and, and they weren't allowed to do these kinds of works during those times. Uh, but they take Jesus' body down as, as, again, he hangs there on the cross and cries to the Father and says, it is finished, and he gives up the ghost. And it does describe in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 28 that the, that the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. The, the veil of the temple was ripped open. Um, and that's, uh, again, a very significant event. Um, but now they've taken and buried Jesus and for many people, this was the end of the story. This vagabond Jew who claimed to be a king amounted to nothing. And they killed him and he died. And now the Jews, they were still afraid because they asked Pilate to set a guard at the, at the uh, tomb so that the disciples wouldn't steal the body and pretend that Jesus had been raised. And so they tried to, to continue. They were still scared of what was going to happen next because Jesus had made so many claims about that. Uh, but for many people, they just kind of went on living their life. And that was it. But the blessing is that that wasn't it. Matthew 28, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, this is now Sunday morning, um, at the end of the Sabbath, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. So they invite the men to come and see this place where, where Christ lay, and the women run and tell the other disciples, and Peter and John and more come to the temple, and they see that Jesus is not here. He has been raised just as he said that he was going to be. And Jesus, again, shows himself and appears to them and teaches them more and reminds them of all these things because he, he could tell them only so much before he died. And then once he died, they just kind of, didn't remember the things that he said were going to happen. And so after his resurrection, he comes and reminds him of all these things. And this was all part of the plan and the purpose of God. In Luke 24, 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written, This is Christ, resurrected now with his disciples, teaching them. Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Again, the connection and reference to the gathering of all nations by this king, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them far out as, as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hand and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And so Christ, resurrected now, shows himself to the disciples and is with them for for um, about 50 days or 40 days, and he is carried up into heaven now as he departs and blessing them. He rises up to sit on the right hand of the throne of the Father, the resurrected King. Now, why is it that Jesus had to endure all of these things? Why is it that Jesus had to, had to go to the cross, had to 
shed his blood, had to be buried. What's the significance of the burial and why is it that he had to be resurrected? Well, very quickly, let's go through the reasons here. The fact that Jesus had to die had to happen because he had to enter into the holy place with special sacrificial blood to, and to establish the new covenant with this sacrifice. In Hebrews 9, it says in verse 3, and after this is a description of the temple that, that was standing at the time of, before Jesus' death. There was a giant veil that separated these two rooms, it says, and in the second veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. There was a special room where the Ark of the Covenant was that was the most holy place that the high priest went in once a year into that place, yet not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. What was the meaning of that? The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way in to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. And so that tabernacle was a representation of something Access to God, the Holy of Holies, was not yet granted to all people. That's what it means. And so Jesus had to die to go into that place with perfect blood so that, so that it would end the need for that temple and that tabernacle and that system and to establish a new system. It says in verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. There He made the perfect sacrifice that would end all sacrifices because without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And when the perfect blood is shed and offered, it, it remits our sins perfectly and there is no need for any continual sacrifice from that point on of, of this type. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, it also tells us that by doing this, He establishes a new covenant. That's just like He told His disciples when they had the supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Where a testament is, in Hebrews 9.16, where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. He had to die in order to offer the perfect blood. He had to die so that blood could be shed and ratify this covenant, this new covenant, and, and bind us to this through the sacrifice. And not only that, it gives us access into the holy place, the most holy place, and we can be in the presence of God because of Jesus and His sacrifice. Why did He have to be buried? Well, Jesus experienced the separation of His body and His soul. That's death. It's a separation. And when we die, our body and soul separate. Our body goes into the grave. Our soul goes into Hades. And Jesus went through the exact same process just like you and I. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus died in order to break the cycle. He died just like you and I, but he did this to break the power that Satan had over death. And he breaks the cycle now. Um, and he goes into that very place like, like we do, just like we do. And, and the fact that he was buried proves that he experienced the very same things that we did in, in, uh, in the same way when we die. Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins 
speaking of David's loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And not only the fact that someone was going to come from his lineage and sit on his throne, but it's a very specific language. He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. Jesus was going to go through the exact same process that you and I went through so that he could break the power of Satan. And on the third day, his soul was taken from Hades and put back into his body. That's the significance of the resurrection. That's the significance of what Jesus did because he broke the cycle of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20-21, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. That corn that's planted that dies alone, it is raised up and it brings much fruit. And, and it explodes with growth because Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead to live to eternal life. And He has become the first fruits of them that have died. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. We know the story of, of Adam and Eve and how they caused sin and death to enter into the world. And Jesus came to correct that, to break the cycle that they caused and to restore what God had created us to be. And that's, this is what Jesus brought into the world for us through the resurrection. 2 Timothy 1.10, But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. And not only put death away, He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the, the most important and the most significant, the most special thing that God could have ever done for you and I in bringing about this salvation through Jesus Christ. And, and so what is the importance for you and I? What is the, the call to action? What is the thing we need to do? Why does this matter so much and what should it compel us to do? Like, What are we supposed to do with this information? Well, what we're supposed to do is to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, because the way has been opened. At His death, that temple veil ripped in two, and it's like the doorway was opened. It was ripped wide open. He says we should have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. There was so much significance tied up in the death of Christ, and this was, this was one of those things, giving us access. And so, you and I ought to boldly em embrace Christ's death and His sacrifice as the only possible way to enter into the holy place of God and to be in His presence and to be members of His body, and to be members of His kingdom, and to stand before Him as cleansed priests, part of the royal priesthood. So we should be cleansed by the blood. We ought to be buried as Christ was buried. Jesus was buried to be separated, His body and His soul. We're buried in baptism, of course, and, and what we accomplished in that is, is us being separated from our sins. Romans chapter 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The act of being buried in Christ is a separation from your sins. And it's a perfect picture of Christ dying and being buried. And now what is left for us is to live as people of the resurrection because like Christ was raised up, even so are we raised up from baptism. It says in verse 4, 
Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And so the importance for us is, and again, this isn't just on one Sunday out of the year. This is every day of our lives living as Christians. We need to know and recognize the importance of of the resurrection of Christ. It is not about Easter bunnies and baskets and gathering eggs. That's all fun, and that's fine. We're going to do the very same thing uh, this afternoon because the kids really enjoy that. But that is not the significance of Easter. This is the significance of Easter. We ought to know that Jesus was raised up from the dead so that we could have life. And if we have life, we're going to experience the same physical bodily resurrection that Jesus brought into this world because that's what He established through this process. If the Spirit of Him, it says in Romans 8, 11, but if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. And so this tells us that it is far more meaningful than just a one-time act where we're baptized and then we kind of go on our merry way. It is, a, it is now a life change. We are now different people and should be different people, separate from our sins and letting those things go and now living as children of the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, and that He died for all, that they which live, those who have chosen to live, you've chosen to give up the death that you were living in, the death of your sins, you're separated now, and if you live, not live to yourself, to your own desires, to your own way of thinking, to your own opinions, to your own guidance, not living to, to, according to your own self, but living unto Him which died for them and rose again. This is the life that we are called to live and the importance of understanding the story and the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. And so, behold your King. Will we be like the people who praise Jesus at the entering of Jerusalem and say, this is the King, Hosanna in the highest. We're celebrating the fact that this King has come and we get to be part of this kingdom. Or will we, we be like the Jews that rejected Him and when we hear, behold your King, we say, nah, I don't want that. Because we get to make the choice in our life. The way we live, the choices we make, the things we do, the focus we have in life, we're making a decision one way or another. And the call to action for us, the importance for us, is to know and to choose to be children of the resurrection and live for Him that not only died for you, but rose again for you. The lesson is yours, and I, I pray this morning if you, uh, if you have a sense of, of conviction or you're, you have something in your conscience you know is bothering you, you know that, that there's changes that you need to make, the first step, of course, if you're not baptized, is to become baptized, to, to, to experience the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and be made part of the family. God wants that for you, and He extends His great mercy uh, through this act of Christ, and it's, it's an incredible blessing that, is, that you will not regret. So if you need that, we are here to help. And if you're a Christian that's already been baptized, don't forget to to rely on that cleansing blood of Christ to keep you standing in the holy place of God. Let His blood cleanse you. Let His family here, the royal priesthood of Christ, pray with you on your behalf to the Father. 
And we know that he grants forgiveness to those who ask it. And so we, we stand ready to assist anyone as we stand and we sing this song. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.